Before you are seated, would you take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 2, and let's, we're going to look at the church at Ephesus. Let's read our text. Revelation 2, we'll read 1 through 7. So to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we are embarking today on some of the most critical teaching, New Testament teaching, in regard to understanding the church. So these are seven churches in seven literal cities. And as you know, no church is ever the same, and we will see with the seven that they are not the same as well. But churches are to be in strategic places. And as they are in these places, they are to be strategic lights wherever they are located. And as we look at the seven churches over the next seven weeks, we will see that they had been called to be seven lights for Jesus to be examples. And some of them are struggling. As a matter of fact, only two of them Does Jesus not have anything negative to say about them? Um, We will see that four of them um, didn't compromise any type of sin in their midst, but uh, or three of them did not, but four of them did allow sin um, to be in their midst. So churches are not to be hidden out in the wilderness. They are to be strategically placed in communities serving as cities and lights up on a hill that they would be noticed and they would be seen and recognized for who they are. And throughout the ages, as well as in our age today, it is churches who have needed these seven messages from Jesus. These messages are timeless for the church age. They were just not for these seven, but they were to continue to be lessons to be learned, cautions, warnings, and affirmations for every church in every age. They were to be north stars for the church in regard to how to walk and what to avoid and how to function. So all of the issues that we will encounter in these seven churches are the very ones that we see throughout history. And if you will look around in our current culture today, you will see all seven of them in our current culture as well. Now let me state this. To be a vibrant, thriving, moving forward kind of church will depend upon whether we embrace the words of Jesus here or we will discard what he has to say in regard to the church. Cities need strong biblical churches. Families need these. Counties and states, our nation needs this. Churches that are active in pouring out their lives into the lives of other people, but are, are pro- places of proclamation of the gospel on Sunday morning, reminding the people of God who we are and how we are to live. Now, I'm not going to do this every week, but I'll just kind of give you an overview of this. There's a structure to all seven messages. It always begins with an address to the particular church in the city and the leader or the pastor or the point elder, whatever the case may be, of that church. Then we learn immediately who the author of the words are. And Jesus is the author of all seven messages. Then Jesus gives an assessment of the church. He will say, I know this about you. And he will either give affirmation 
or he will point out something about the church that is not in its uh, not right in its mists. And then he will give the answer to whatever might be wrong. And then he will give an admonition or a counsel at the end to all seven where he will say, you need to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And he will speak about having a heart of a conqueror. And then he will have some aspect of where we are going. Do you know that his people are going to where he is? That's where we're going. This is not our home. We are headed to another place in his very presence. And so in each one of these messages, we will be reminded of that as well. I believe that all seven messages are a call to the church to move to a place of spiritual biblical maturity. That is what's necessary. And some of these, they are doing well. And many of them, and the majority of them, there were struggles in their midst. So let me give you just a brief overview of these. I'm going to do this. If you're a part of the private internal Facebook page, I'm going to give you the background of all seven um, churches probably on Friday or Saturday so you can kind of read that ahead of time so we can get right into the text. And so I put that on there um, yesterday. But we will begin to see today these seven churches. Ephesus is the church that had all of the right ministry, everything. But they had lost their original love for Jesus. Next week we'll see Smyrna. It's a church that was dealing strongly with persecution. And so we will talk next week about the persecuted church. Pergamum was the church of compromise. It was one that um, had compromised much of their integrity and what they were supposed to be about. Then we will encounter Thyatira. It's a church of tolerance. And they were tolerating things within the midst of the church that were not right and biblical. And then fifthly, we'll see Sardis. It's a church that was spiritually dead. There was just not much connected to Sardis at all. And then we will see the church of great faithfulness, the church of Philadelphia, this one who had great love for God and great love for one another. And then we will close out our time looking at Laodicea. And it was the church that was content to just with apathy and just living a lukewarm life. Now, my concern for us as LifePoint is that I don't think the... um, we're not living under great persecution here today, so we're, we're not like um, what we're going to see next week with Smyrna. Um, Philadelphia also was dealing with much of that persecution as well. My deepest concern for us is that we would become like Ephesus. We are a church that's deeply concerned about right doctrine, about doing the right thing and being biblical in everything that we do. So the danger, I think, for us that we need to be pay particularly attention to today is that we can be like them where we have all of the right belief system, all of the right kind of ministry, but over time we would be doing this without a heart for God. Because you can do that. You can go through the motions and you can be faithful. You can know the right things, but lose that love that was there initially like Ephesus had. And so I think today of all the churches that are here of the seven that LifePoint needs to pay close attention to, and we do need, it's, a, it's Bible, we should pay attention to all seven of them. But I think we need to pay special attention to this one today. Jesus is the author of all of these messages, and so it's important for us to see that. And so when he speaks, there will be an aspect of, every, of, of what John saw at the end of Revelation 1. All of these things that we looked at a couple of weeks ago about the perfections of Jesus, he will go back to those and connect them to the church and bring ap- ap- application um, that's there. So I also want to say this before we get into the text this morning. <clears throat> you will hear this a lot today. As a matter of fact, when we were uh, this past week in Kentucky... Um, it was a fascinating um, lesson to be in a place um, that's different than here. Um, Kentucky has had generational people who have been born there. They have stayed there. It's not a place where a lot of transplanted people come there. And there wasn't a single person. I, I personally shared the full gospel. I counted it up 19 times last week. That doesn't include... Uh, the number of gospel presentations our students did and some of the other adults did. And I didn't meet a single person who didn't know the facts about the gospel, not a single person. Um, And so part of the conversation that I met with people 
is that many of them said to me, but I don't need the church. Yeah, I'm a follower. I know the facts. I don't need the church. And I want to remind us that though this is prevalent in our culture today, I want to remind you and I today that if you are a follower of Jesus, you do, you do need the church. As a matter of fact, you are commanded to be a part, we are, of the church. These are seven messages, not to individuals, but they are seven messages to gathered people of God in cities that were churches. The majority of the letters were written to gathered people who were gathering together, worshiping together. So much of Paul's writings were that way. I believe the book of Hebrews was also written to a gathered group of Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back to the old way. And so the writer is writing to them saying, no, there is a better way. And so I I just want to remind us this morning that um, your presence here today is biblical. And we are to consistently practice gathering together with the people of God. So I've got a couple pictures and then we're going to move on. Aaron, if you could put that first one up for us. Um, Ephesus had a 25,000-seat amphitheater. So you go back a couple thousand years ago, it was pretty significant. So they would do plays. This is in Turkey today, but that's that's what it looks like, the ruins of that. And then here's another one. One of the things, that this is the the Temple of Artemis that was at the top of the city um, there. This is kind of a replica of probably what that was like. And so this is where many of the people, there were um, sexual... Religious practices that took place here, a lot of evil things um, happened and took place. You'll, you'll notice a while ago, the Nicolaitans, they were probably doing some things that were there, and this was drifting in uh, to the church. But that's a little bit of the background and some things of what was taking place in Ephesus. And then I want to show you this before we get into the text this morning. So this is modern-day Turkey. All, all seven of these letters were written um, to Asia Minor at that time. And this was kind of a postal route during those days. And so this is kind of the way it goes. We will start at Ephesus and we will go up and then we will go to Thyatira and down that way. And so this was kind of a route that you would come into the port in Ephesus and then there would be a route that would kind of go up to all seven um, of the churches. So let's look at our text today beginning in verse 1. And I want to start with this point. Look with me in verse 1. So he says, To the angel... Of the church in Ephesus, right. Now I want you to go up to chapter 1, verse 20, just right above that, so that we can make sure that we understand what Jesus is communicating here. So he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, I want to make sure that we understand these were not, this is not written to a holy angel that God created that was over the churches. The word angel in the Greek means messenger. So these are, this letter, this book, Revelation, and these letters were to come to seven individual churches. And first of all, they were to come to the messenger of that church. So the first thing we need to see this morning, that in Jesus' communication to all seven churches... We see that Jesus values leaders who embrace and affirm God's words. So to the angel of the church in Ephesus. So there he is here. A point person, a point leader, a point elder in the church of Ephesus. That when this letter came to them, he was to have charge of this. He was to read it. And they were to read aloud all of this book from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 22. And so we want to establish and be reminded here that this is to come to the leader of the church in Ephesus. So there is a call first that we must see in every single church that the leadership is to know Christ and the leadership is to embrace the written words in the scripture that have come to them. So the leadership receives the words, not, not, not new revelation. There's no root new revelation. But we are to receive the scripture as it's come to us. And we are to teach that, proclaim that, call all of us to follow the scripture. And so immediately we see from Jesus here that there is an indelible link that Jesus has 
with the leaders of churches and his word. That means this, that if leaders do not recognize the scripture as the highest priority in the church, then the church will have a misguided direction concerning the higher priority and the highest priority that a local church has. So if the leaders don't value the word of God, it will not be proclaimed consistently. But if they do value the word of God, it will be consistently proclaimed, and that is for the good of the people. In a local church, everything is to flow out of this priority of the proclamation and the teaching and the following of Scripture. So as Jesus addresses the leader or leaders, it doesn't mean that they are greater than the members, but they have a unique role in the midst of the members. They have a greater responsibility to be careful of things about what's taught and what is allowed. And so, so there's a big debate today. Um, should there, I don't know if it's a big debate, but there's some debate in church circles. Should there even be a pastor or should there just be elders? And I think that there are both. And I think the New Testament affirms that. There should always be elders that are co-equal with one another. Um, but there's always often a, a leader among the leaders in a sense of leading out things and casting vision and things of this nature. And it's clear here that there was someone that looks like in Ephesus and all of the other churches who had this unique role in what they were to do and follow. Now note this, to the angel, the messenger in the church of Ephesus, write words. Words need to come to this one. These are the very words of Jesus coming to them. Therefore, these are scripture. Therefore, they are an absolute necessary a necessity for the content of the message and the direction for the church. And I believe the words for a local church, the words of Jesus, are the great gift to the church. You'll say amen at this. I am, I am not the great gift to LifePoint Fellowship. Amen. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Jesus, his words are. The reason this place can be a biblical-centered place and Christ-centered place is that the greatest gift to the church is Jesus himself and his words. And when those are our priority, then things will be headed in the right direction. So why are these words to the seven churches, and particularly beginning here at Ephesus, why are they so important? Well, let me give you something maybe you've not ever thought of. So Jesus pours his life into 12 men. One of them at the end loses his way. So in Acts chapter 2, the church is birthed, and it begins at, at Pentecost. So they start the Jerusalem church, and then over time... Through persecution and other means, they are thrust out to leave Jerusalem. And they began to take the gospel as Jesus instructed them to other nations, to other people groups, and to other languages. Now John is on the Isle of Patmos. This revelation comes to him at about 95 AD. These words come to seven particular New Testament churches. The reason Revelation 2 are important is Jesus has been gone from the planet for about 60 years now. So the church has been functioning and moving forward. He's been seated at the right hand of his father for 60 years, earth years. We know God's not confined by time. So now these messages, 60 years later after the birth of the church and, and after the ascension of Jesus, and Jesus has a perspective of how the condition of the church and what a church needs to be about. And so these words are unique because they are given 60 years after his ascension. Very important lessons to learn and see how the churches have responded to the biblical Priority, And so the first point this morning is just simply that. The local church must have as its priority leaders who value the word of God. Do you agree with me? That must be a priority for the church. Secondly, I want to remind us this morning that Jesus not only 
sends his words to the leaders of the church, but he holds the leaders and their calling in his hand. So look at verse 1 again. So to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars. Remember the seven stars that were there in his right hand, representing the pastors who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So here's the second thing I just want to point out this morning that's important. Jesus holds these messengers in his mighty hand. He has the ownership of the leaders of a local church. This indicates two strong priorities. First is this, the sovereign protection of Jesus upon the elder or the elders or the pastor of a local church. This is not a reference to their protection and salvation, for our eternal salvation is secure. So this is a protection on another another level. It is their calling of the pastor. So as long as the pastor continues to walk in obedience and holiness, they will walk in great security no matter what the culture does, no matter the persecution they may come from a government. But sadly, as we know, many a pastor throughout history and even today have loved the world and loved sin and they have forfeited their calling. But if a pastor will walk with God, there is a sovereign protection of Jesus that's there as they are held in his mighty hand. Here's the second thing, that he holds the divine authority over the calling of the minister. God is the one who calls men to this ministry and he gives them the authority in the life of a pastor. The pastor is not born with this, but it is given by the Lord. So as Jesus begins to address 60 years after his ascension, the priority of a local church, he reminds them, the pastor and the leaders, they are to embrace the words of God and they have a calling that is connected to the divine hand of God. Now, there's a possibility I could walk away from my calling and choose to go my own way. And again, many have done that. They have shipwrecked their faith and they have walked away from the calling. But if a pastor will walk with God, he has this promise from Jesus here that we are held in his hand. And as we walk in obedience and follow him, there is a protection of that calling a divine authority that is given in the proclamation of the scripture. And so the design of God in a local church is to work through the pastor, not to go around him. Jesus wants his words to come upon a man's life to equip him to preach and to lead according to the words of Jesus. This is a call upon my life to die to myself so that I would gain the wonder and the glory of what it means to preach and to proclaim and to walk with God in this role. And so, again, first two points. Jesus values the leaders who embrace his words. And so he says, write these words and get them to the pastor. And the leaders are held in the hands of Jesus. Here's the third thing. This is Jesus' church, not man's church. Life Point is not my church. It's where I attend, it's where I lead, and it's where my calling has me. This church belongs to who? That's a response question. It belongs to Christ. So note what the last part of verse 1 says. Who walks among the seven golden lampstands. These lampstands representing the church. So because the church was... Bought by the blood of Jesus, he holds the authority to examine each church, to speak to the church, words of affirmation, or words concerning aspects of things that need to be addressed and corrected. So he walks among the golden lampstands. Note the word walks, not sits. He walks in the midst of the churches, looking at them from every angle ministering to them, touching what needs to be touched and dealing with things. He walks among the churches. 
The fact that he does shows up in the church reveals that he loves the church and he is concerned about what is going on. He has a hands-on approach with the church. So not only is Jesus in a unique relationship with the pastors, but his presence is constant among the churches that love his name. And as he walks among them, he observes certain things and he comes to know them quite intimately. So we will encounter both what Christ commends in the church and also what Christ condemns in a local congregation. So now we're going to get deeper into the church of Ephesus. And what we're about to see are six things. And I have more points after that, but six subpoints. okay? Really important things about the local church. If you want to have a strong ministry, you will embrace what Ephesus embraced. So let's read 2 and 3 again. So these are Jesus' words speaking about the ministry life of the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So before we walk with these, let me just say a few statements. Jesus wants to find qualities in a local church that honor him, that are like him. That were like what we read in the Gospels and what he embraced. So therefore, these kind of things must be for the leaders to embrace and teach and affirm. And it will be a healthy place for everybody who attends when that is the case. So Jesus is walking among the church in Ephesus. And he's observing the substance of their ministry. And so he affirms some things that he sees in the midst of Ephesus. And he also sees one thing that we'll talk about in a moment. But I want to say this. Jesus, watch, establishes the true standard that we are to follow. I don't establish that. Nobody else establishes. Jesus establishes the standard for what a church is is to follow in what they are to embrace. Here's the first one. The church and its engaging movement of ministry. So in the first part of verse 2, he says there, I know your works. This word know here in the Greek means complete knowledge. He has perfect knowledge of every church, and particularly this church. So as he stood and he walked among Ephesus... He saw everything that needed to be seen, everything that needed to be addressed. He sees good things. He sees things that, um, that were not right. And with Ephesus, they had lost their initial first love. So as he addresses this, note this, that when Jesus speaks about the church, he speaks from a place of complete knowledge. He knows everything about everything at all times, never has to learn anything. So as he's walking among Ephesus, he sees and he says, I know of your works. Well, what were their works like? Well, we learn this, that they were working in great toil. This word toil in the Greek means difficult. It means to labor with sweat to the point of exhaustion. That's me this morning. When you wake up, all of us have been on the mission trip. You wake up at 5.30 in the morning. You go to sleep at about midnight. For about five days, you're tired. And this was the case with Ephesus. They were hard-working church, ministering to their people, proclaiming, standing strong, not participating in the things that were taking place at the temple of Artemis. They were ministering to one another. They were faithful in what they did, and they were working hard, this was not a spectator church. This was a place where the members participated in the ministry. No doubt there's a time for rest. But there's also a time for real hard work and investment in a local church. This church is about 40 years old now, Ephesus. And it's a hard-working one. Faithful in the task of ministry. 
And a read of Ephesus history shows that it was a tough place to do ministry, a tough place to be a member and to walk faithfully with God. So Jesus affirms with them, and we must see this, that we must be a church who is about good works, where we're investing faithfully in the things that Jesus has asked us to do, at times to the point of being tired, and that happens. If you're going to do ministry, that will be the case. Secondly, Jesus affirms their patient endurance. This was a church that wasn't willing to quit. They were not going to quit. So he tells them, listen, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. This is a Greek word, hupomone. And it means endurance under extreme hardship. It is a word that speaks to more enduring circumstances than it is enduring people. And sometimes do we not have to endure people? But that's not the case here. The issue here is not they were having a hard time with people. They were having a hard time with the circumstances that they were suffering under um, as they were doing ministry. And so this church had a willingness to not quit, to continue to be faithful, to move forward in their ministry. And I believe sometimes in a local church, it's the enduring patience that becomes evidence of the commitment of the call to the gospel, to continue to be faithful. And Christian maturity never happens in a local church overnight, but through faithful, patient, hardworking pursuit of God over the years. We will be, this October, 15 years old, this church. And the growth of those of us who have been here from the very beginning, and those along the way, and even some of you recent ones, you have been brought here, I think, because of one of the high values that we have at our church And that's the teaching of what the scripture says. That this is not a place where man's agenda drives things that we want. We want God's agenda to drive everything. And we have been faithful in pursuing. And I believe God has matured us through these years. And we must continue to stay at this task of working. And even when we're tired and being consistent in the things that we have been called to do. Here's the third thing about the church of Ephesus. They had a strong stance against evil in their city. So in verse 2, he says, and, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Ephesus understood that the gospel was to go forth in their city, and that meant no compromise. So the church, I want to remind you and I, because out there, outside of our walls, are much teaching in the progressive church and other aspects of church life in our country, where churches are not places of godliness. They allow evil to be in the midst of the church, and it's even proclaimed from the platform. It's written in their blogs. It's affirmed in their writings and what they teach their children. And one of the things Jesus affirms about Ephesus is that they cannot and could not and would not bear with those who were evil. He said to them in Ephesians 4.25, he said, Put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one body and one another. So he, Paul had, had shared that with the church. In Ephesus. It's interesting that four of the seven churches that Jesus addresses here tolerated some type of sin in the midst of the church and didn't do anything about it. Three of them didn't allow it, but four of them did. The church is to, listen, church, is to never tolerate evil. And there's a lot of pressure today upon believers to do so. And we cannot compromise at all. We cannot call what is evil good. We must call what is evil, evil, and and remain there. And call and and not compromise on that at all. 
So the next thing Jesus says is connected with that. So Ephesus did not affirm anything about evil. And then he said they had discernment. Because they didn't tolerate evil things, they also listened well of things that were being taught. And so the next part of verse 2 says, But you have also tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. And so there were people who came along to the church in Ephesus and said, Well, I'm apostle of Jesus Christ. And they were teaching things that were contrary to what the real apostles taught. In Ephesus so knew the word that when they heard the teaching, they had discernment to be able to know and say, no, that's not true. That's not what Paul taught us. It's not what we learned from Priscilla and Aquila. That's not what Timothy has taught us. We believe and know that John was there at one point in time. John didn't teach us that. And so they had discernment. And I am wholeheartedly convinced of this, that many churches and denominations in America today have lost the ability to have spiritual discernment and they've lost that ability to have spiritual discernment about what is evil is because the scripture is no longer valued in those churches because you cannot have spiritual discernment if you do not know the word of God because there's nothing to compare what's being taught. And so Jesus here affirms them that when they heard people teach in and around Ephesus, they would examine them and they would find them to be false and they would not tolerate those. They had listened, listen to this, they had listened 40 years into their ministry what Paul had told them in Acts chapter 20. If you remember, Paul was on a ship and he wanted to stop at Ephesus to see them one one more time, but he couldn't. But the ship he was on was going to land in Miletus. And so he sent word for the elders at Ephesus to meet him in Miletus, just down the coastline a bit of Asia Minor. And when he got there with them, he, he just pours his heart out to the Ephesian elders. And he says this, I want you to pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And then Paul told them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. And even from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering, listen to the investment, that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish you, every one of you, he says, with tears. So Paul reminds them one more time, you've got to have discernment. And discernment comes when we know the word of God. Romans 12, 2 talks about this. Do not be conformed, one and two, conformed to the pattern of this world. And then he gets to the place where he says, so that as you do the will of God, there's a discernment. You know what right and wrong is. You are able to recognize that. And we live today, by the way, in a very gullible time in the Western church. And the reason is, is because churches are not embracing what has been written for us. So many churches just jump on whatever the latest trend is, whatever the latest book is, song, newest bandwagon, newest hot speaker, nuanced brand of church philosophy, but it's only the remnant that stays true to the Scripture. So I remind you and I, we are to be 616ers. That's what we ought to be. What is a 616er? It's this. Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look. Ask for ancient paths. And on the ancient paths, Jeremiah says, that's where the good way is. And you walk in it. And if you'll walk in it, he says, you will find rest for your souls. We need original content that is ancient and ever true and relevant regardless of the age and regardless of what culture says. Here's the fifth thing that Jesus affirms with them, that they were willing to value and honor and endure under his name and for his name. Verse 3 says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. 
and you have not grown weary. Everything they did, they did with the utmost priority in mind, the glory of the name of Jesus. Do you love his name today? Do you value, do you and I value the name of Jesus? Here's the last thing that he affirms in verse 6. You've got to jump ahead a little bit. He said, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This group called the Nicolaitans, it's hard to fully understand everything about them. They are mentioned again in verse 15 of chapter 2 in one of the other churches. But we gain some insight about their name. Nicolaitan is a combination of two Greek words. The first word, Nikeo, means to conquer. Laos means the people. They were people that aimed to conquer the mindset and conquer other people through things of impurity. And Jesus says here that he hated them. And from what we understand from history... The Nicolaitans were part of some of the aspects of prostitution and sexual immorality that took place place at the temple of Artemis. It's believed and understood that this was drifting into the church in Ephesus. People were trying to bring this into the church in Ephesus, and they were not having anything to do with that. They were fighting this, and they were pushing back this sexual immorality. It's believed that the Nicolaitans were kind of the first century hippies, in a sense. Kind of free sexual love and and things of this nature. Jesus, I want to note out here, please hear this, hated what they practiced. Now I want to talk about the word hate for a moment. We are to hate certain things. Do you hear me? We don't hate people, but we are to hate practices. This is to be among God's people. Jesus says here, he hated what the Nicolaitans taught and what they did. And he affirms in the church at Ephesus that their level of hatred for this teaching and this immorality was similar to the way Christ felt about the Nicolaitans. And this advocating of sexual tolerance and allowing a number of things to be a part of the culture there. Now let me just bring this down to a bit of practicality today. Christians, and I hope some of you don't misunderstand me. I hope you just, you hear this through the biblical ears and lens. Christians and conservative, even conservative people who don't know the Lord and common sense people in our culture today are under attack by this new sexual ethic that has arisen in our culture. Affirmation of homosexual relationships. You church people just need to get with the times and be okay with this. Church people, y'all need to be okay that that Hospitals and doctors want to mutely do things gender-wise to children. Y'all need to be okay with that. And I want to remind us this morning that whatever the case may be, the transgender stuff, the sexual ethic that is being put up in pressure upon the church, that we are to always push back and we are to hate this. I'm telling you today, it's biblical. And we ought to, we ought to be strong in our stance and, and loving on the people who are, everybody who's affirming that, some of them are pure evil and some of them are deeply broken, confused people who need the gospel. And they need to see a real light and a witness connected to the people of God. But according to Jesus here, There can be a hatred that's biblical toward the things that are destructive to a nation and to a people and to children and to families and to churches. And so the culture is going to continue, by the way, affirm this, are they not? 
And so we, again, we want to be loving to people who are deeply confused, but we are going to be a church at LifePoint that is going to proclaim what is true, and we will push back against the darkness. And we will line our lives up. And the reason we do this is that Jesus hates everything that harms people who had been made in his image. That's why we stand strongly against abortion. If he is the creator, which he still is, that even in some of the most dire moments and circumstances in our human brains, it's hard in a moment to understand why a conception has occurred. But if a conception has occurred and life is growing in a body, it is not our place to kill. And so we are to stand and we are to be people of the word. You see, it's not enough just to dislike the sins of society. We are to hate certain sins like Jesus. And this live and let live mindset and belief is not a biblical value and it's not taught in scripture. We are a kind of people who biblically hate what Jesus hates. So look, that kind of sounds like us, those principles. Look at them up there on the screen. We have a strong biblical stance against evil. Our church is a church of great spiritual discernment. There's a willingness for us to continue to affirm and endure and and to be true to the scripture for the name and the glory of Jesus. We are a place that honors what God honors and godliness and we don't like what has been thrust upon the church and so it sounds like us. So I want you to note that you can be a church like this. You can have all of the right ministry but you can lose the heart for that ministry. And that's what happens next. Let's look at the next thing. So Jesus says, yeah, you've got this but I have identified something about you, Ephesus, that's a dangerous and destructive blind spot in your midst. So look at verse 4. So he says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. So while Jesus affirms much about the church in Ephesus, there are certain things that he sees or a certain thing that he sees in this church that didn't need to be inside of it. So this church had outside pressure. It had inside pressure it was dealing with. It wouldn't tolerate any of the inside pressure. It wasn't tolerating any of the outside pressure. But they had lost their heart for why they were doing what they were doing. So as Jesus walked among the lampstand at Ephesus, he recognized that even though everything was right and strong ministry was happening, they had abandoned the love that they had had for Jesus at first. So let's break down these words that Jesus speaks here. He says, I have. So he saw what needed to be dealt with and he spoke about it. They likely couldn't see it on their own and so Jesus points it out to them. Possibly maybe through the years they had so patiently endured standing strong in a difficult difficult city of pressure from the secular religious culture and the government and Roman government and maybe they were weary and they were suffering from some fatigue and the spiritual war sometimes that comes but whatever the case may be they'd gotten to the place where they neglected their love for Jesus listen to this they had become more ministry oriented than Jesus oriented and they had to get back to being more Jesus oriented which would empower the ministry that they would be doing better. You see, it all starts with a love for Jesus, and it will continue with the love for Jesus. So he says, I have this issue with you. You have left. This word left in the Greek means this. You have forsaken this, or you have neglected this. The Ephesians, again, through time, had no longer loved the Lord Jesus as they did in the very beginning when the gospel had come to them. And I tell you, you read about Ephesians and and in the scripture and in the book of Acts, and you read Ephesians there, and and you read now this. There was there was a love that was there. Paul spent more time than any other, with any other church than the, the church at Ephesus. And when they when when Paul's about to get back on the boat and he's about to to head 
um, to where he's going, they just, all of these men grabbed one another and it says that they just wept together because they, they, they were sad about the words that Paul had said. And what Paul had said was this, is that we're not ever going to see each other again. And Paul loved them and they loved him and there was a deep love that was there. But now, 40 years into their ministry, this was gone. The word love here is the description of the deepest kind of love. You see, they didn't have a faith or doctrinal issue in Ephesus. They didn't. They had a heart problem. Something that happened inside of their heart. They were characterized by all the right things, but a heart alive for God. And I tell you, regardless of how much Bible we have studied or how much Bible we can quote, regardless of how much you and I serve Him, regardless of past victories, whatever the case may be, you cannot long-term walk with God if you do not love Him. We must love Him, and it must drive who we are. We must, this is the most important piece, we must love Jesus. And the love of Jesus was no longer the reason why Ephesus was doing the things that they were doing. And you don't lose love overnight. It's lost over time, and so somehow... Over 35 to 40 years, we don't know when it was lost. They had arrived at the place, likely in the second and third generations in the church, that they lost something, and that was that uniqueness that they had in the very beginning. See, I, I want to stress this. Jesus not only wants right doctrine in the church, he wants that, but he also wants the right heart to be present in us as we are in the church. This was not the case in the beginning. Listen to these words. So Paul, about 10 years later, writes back after he started the church in Ephesus. He writes back to them this great letter that we have. And he begins it by saying this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, because of that, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, he may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Ten years into their life, they are strong lovers of God. And now 30 years later, it's gone. Oh, they're doing all the right things. But the love and the heart for him was not there. So let me ask this. Is the honeymoon gone for church, for Jesus in your life? Do you need to go back and remember how it was in the beginning? Has your love grown cold for him today? Are you like Ephesus? I'm a part of a church that values right doctrine, doesn't tolerate evil. And you got to be careful with this, but I think you know what I mean. And, but you just go, I just don't feel it anymore. I'm no longer motivated to read the word. I'm no longer motivated to be with God's people. There's not a purity that was there when my relationship with him began. So what do you do? So Jesus has an answer to that if you've lost your first love. Look at verse 5. So he says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Let me touch on these because I think they are important as we begin to close today. How does this get fixed if you've lost your love for him today. Maybe you've been walking with him for four decades. Same amount of time that Ephesus had been around. And you're, you're surrounded by part of ministries of right biblical doctrine and all that kind of stuff. But the heart is just not there anymore. And you know it's not there. And you fooled everybody else. But you haven't fooled yourself And because Jesus walks among the golden lampstands, he walks by your life and my life 
and he knows the truth in your heart. How does this get fixed? Well, the first thing that it gets fixed is that Jesus says, you've got to remember the original place. You've got to remember when it all began. The word fallen here means a place that we fall from. And when we fall, we fall from a higher place, a stronger place, a better place. Literally in the Greek, it just means this, to be in a state of spiritual decline. They, had, they were in a spiritual decline, the church was. Now, this is more than just an occasional lapse. This was the way that they were functioning as a church. And that kind of lifestyle over time is very destructive. And so Jesus tells them, you've got to get back to the place where it all got lost. You've got to go back to the beginning. Go back to the starting point from where you fell. Remember it. Remember those days. Listen to this. You know why giving a personal testimony, I think testimonies ought to be twofold. One, what God's doing now in your life, but I think a testimony also ought to be when you came to know him originally because that's when the drastic mindset shift came. And so he tells them, you got to go back to the very beginning. you got to revisit when you came to know him. It all gets lost by forgetting what was once valuable, and they had forgotten what was once valuable to them. So you know what I did yesterday? This is a practice of mine. You can implement it in your own life. Um, or you can find some other way. So this is what I do. So on my Spotify, um, I came to Christ in the 80s. That was a long time ago now. In the early heydays of contemporary Christian music, Mylon Lefevre and Broken Heart, Petra, Keith Green, just a number of people. So I got a big, long list. In the first two to three years of my faith, after I'd become a believer at my junior year, and I've made a list of songs that were deeply impactful for me in the early part of my faith. And after every mission trip, whether it's international or whether it was a trip like we had last week in Kentucky, where there are big ministry moments of being faithful and being connected to things, I always listen and spend quite a bit of time listening to songs that take me back to the original time when I first tasted and saw that Jesus is good that he's satisfying. And so I remind myself of those things after every mission trip, listening to some good old stuff, Sweet Comfort Band, Brian Duncan, reminders of early days of when there was a freedom. You know, the problem is when we get more mature in our faith, we complicate our faith more. And our faith wouldn't get so complicated through the years if our love for him remained alive. So Jesus tells him, not my word. Jesus says, you got to go back to the original place and you got to remember when you came to know him and you knew that your life was changed. A lot of things can rob love, but he says, remember the original place. Then he says this, you've got to repent. You've got to repent that you've lost your first love. Once they remembered what, they had, what Jesus had done for them and how far they had fallen, Jesus says, and you remember what it was like to walk with me in those days, you need to recognize that you've lost something. You've got to repent. What do you repent of? Sin. Right? Are we in agreement about that? We repent of sin. So sin also is losing a heart of love for Jesus and just going through the motions. And so Jesus tells them, you've got to remember how it all began. Remember the original love, and you've got to repent of that. You've got to confess that, that I lost my direction, Jesus. And I've got to get it back to where it was just a purity. And so repentance is this idea of a change of mind, changing direction. And so the idea here is there's a transformation of mind that needs to get back to the original place of a purity of love for him. A new manner of thinking must return Thirdly, it's 
So not only remember the original place and repent of that, you've got to return to the original practice. And he says, you've got to do the works that you did at first. I came to Christ on a Friday night, excuse me, a Sunday night. I was gonna, I'm going to tell you about a Friday night. So I, I, I won't go over my testimony again, but, um, but I, I didn't like church. Um, I was forced to go. Family took us. I wasn't interested, never listened, wasn't just, just checked out every Sunday. At the end of my junior year, um, one of my friends came to faith, and uh, he met me on a Sunday morning, and uh, um, he and I used to not do the right things on the weekend all the time, and he met me on Sunday morning, and I saw him, and he was hanging out with all the Christian people. Uh, I, you know, church is supposed to have Christian people, but um, I didn't hang out with the Christian people. We had kind of a group of disinterested people at church that I hung out with. And I saw him across the room, and he was with the people that we teased a lot together. And he walked across the room, and I'll never forget these words. He said, I found what you and I have been looking for. And I just said, oh, great for you, you know. Well, <clears throat> I had an, I was a, at one time I was an athlete. I know I don't look at it anymore, but at one time I was. But my dad had built a basketball goal in our front driveway, and it was eight and a half foot tall so that all of us short people could dunk. And we gathered on Sunday afternoons, and for about three hours in Waco from two to five every Sunday, we played basketball until we couldn't breathe anymore. My friends called and said, hey, we're playing at two still. And I said, hey, I'm not feeling well. Uh, we're not going to play today. See, that the church that I went as a part of had a Disciple Now weekend that I didn't go to, my friend went to it. At 5 o'clock that day up at the church, they were having a testimony service for everybody who went to the Disciple Now weekend to come up and talk about what they'd learned. Guess who showed up at the testimony service of the event that he did not attend? I did. And I look back on that this morning, and I was thinking about it at home before I came, and I thought, only the sovereignty of God moved me to get in my car to go up to an event that I didn't participate in. I don't know what they did during the weekend. And I watched students that I teased a lot for their faith stand up and confess Jesus. And when it was over, I went up to my youth minister and said, I want what all those people have. And I gave my life to Jesus in that moment. The next Friday night, I was driving by the church. I was so excited. This is why I don't understand people who aren't excited about church. The next Friday night, I'm driving by the church that now I'm interested in. And there's a bunch of cars in the parking lot, and I pull in. And I walk inside to find out, what am I missing out on? Well, it was a wedding of somebody that I didn't know. (laughs) But I showed up, and I wanted to make sure I was not missing something. And I have rarely in my life since age 17 in 40 years, I I can honestly say this, I've never really missed church ever in 40 years. I love God's people. I value being with God's people. Because I'd lived 17 years of my life without God's people. And I was old enough to know the importance of having them in my life. So that's why I go back to those early days. First CD I ever got was one that you students go to Spotify and type in Keith Green Songs for the Shepherd. First Christian music I'd ever heard of, and I thought, wow, this is different. And it had to grow on me because it's different, but boy, did it grow on me. Duty, church, is never to replace love. Never. Our duty is never to replace love. And so Jesus says, listen, if you don't get this right, I'm going to come to you, Ephesus. Think of how significant Ephesus is. Apollos was there first. He's got the message of John the Baptist and he's speaking in Ephesus. It's incomplete. Priscilla and Quilla correct Apollos' teaching. We know Timothy was a pastor there. It's believed, according to church tradition, that John took Mary there eventually. Remember on the cross, Jesus says, hey, woman, this is your son. Son, this is your mother. We believe later on, John takes 
Mary to Ephesus. Paul spends three years there. Here's a church that has all of this leadership stuff going for it and has lost its heart. And Jesus warns them strongly, if you are not going to love me and you're going to continue down this road, then I'm going to step in and I'm going to remove your lampstand. What does that mean? Remove your lampstand. They would cease to be what? A church. So God births church, churches, and sometimes God steps in and says, no, I'm done with this because of what's happening and taking place. And so God will do that. So there's a warning of a consequence to not love them. And lastly, there is a call to listen to the Spirit's voice. Every one of these letters to the churches that Jesus has here will say this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We are to use our ears or our eyes. We're to read the scripture, listen to the scripture. And once we do, we are to take it seriously. And I want you to note the direction Jesus says that the Spirit works. He works toward the churches. He speaks toward the churches. The church is a place that we want to invite people to come to, but the church is the gathered people of God. It is primarily to be about the people of God and the teaching and the discipleship of God's people. And so Jesus says the Spirit speaks in the direction toward the churches. And then he uses a military term here. He says to the one who conquers. It's a reminder that the Christian life is a battlefield. It's not the playground out here. It's a battlefield. And we've got to take our role seriously. And then he says, lastly, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You know, when you go on a trip like we did last week and some other mission trips, you learn about people. And some of the people in our church have problems. They are basic food eaters. Did you know that our eternal sovereign God made spices that you can cultivate from the ground that should go into food? So Jesus here talks about this. To the one who conquers, I will grant unto him to be able to eat. I love food. I like spicy food and flavorful food. And I think I can't wait to get to heaven. Some of you are going to have to eat Indian food when we get to heaven for the first time ever. (laughs) And you're going to be blessed by it because it's in a perfect place. When you talk about eating... I think, for me, eating is one of the joys of life, to experience food. And Jesus says here, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. This is, a, this is language about the joy of the reward in heaven and the fact that we have overcome spiritual battles and we get to live with him. The tree of life here represents eternal life, and we will get to partake of that life beyond our wildest dreams and beyond comprehension what's coming for us. So this is Jesus' heart for the church in Ephesus. Next week, we will look at Smyrna, the persecuted church, but let's pray together, okay?